You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. Joining me this week is entrepreneur Fiona Matovu, co-founder and strategic director of Radiant Brighter. Born in Uganda, she came to the UK in 1998 and built her life here. Then in 2007, was refused indefinite leave to remain after filling in the wrong paperwork. No longer eligible to work, Fiona and her husband Michael relocated to Glasgow for its cheaper cost of living and had to depend on family and friends and the local community for their basic needs. During this time, they discovered that there was no identifiable organisations dedicated to offering practical help to immigrants arriving in Scotland to meaningfully integrate into the local community and workplace. So when in 2012, after five long years, they were finally able to work again, the couple founded Radiant and Brighter to provide employment pathways and enterprise support for the black and ethnic minority communities living in Scotland. The organisation also provides training and educational events which challenge and inspire groups and individuals to explore perceptions on culture and diversity for organisational development. And for those of you in Scotland, their Bright Futures Women's Leadership and Enterprise Conference is on Thursday, 27th of September, 2018, for historic listeners, at the RBS headquarters in Gogoburn. And there are still free tickets available. I'm going. Lots of people are going. We'd love to see you there. So Fiona, it's wonderful to be here at your office to podcast with you. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So the question I'd like us to tackle this week comes from a senior startup employee rather than founder who asks, I'm working in a very homogenous startup environment and I really don't think the organisation realises just how lacking in diversity it is or why this matters. I'm trying to change things from the inside, but I'm already starting to get the eye rolls and was recently accused of being obsessed and a stuck record. I don't want to give up yet, not least because we will all gain if we can sort this, but how do we have an intelligent, constructive conversation around diversity, especially ethnic and cultural diversity, when I seem to be the only one who thinks we have a problem? Interesting territory. But before we dive into the question... Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about your own journey as a founder and entrepreneur and what you've learned along the way. Well, thank you very much for having me, Vicky. I have not a very unique journey. I think there's a lot of people that are just like me that have come into Scotland to make it their home. But I do have a story to tell. It's both good and not so good. So I came, when we came to Scotland, uh, it was an opportunity for our lives to change and for a brighter future. But we came at a very difficult time. Um, and in that time, I didn't know where to start. But I think what I found most challenging is that in the previous circumstances and in the previous situation we had been, I was able to look after my children. I was able to pay rent and then we got into this situation where we could, we had to either choose rent or food and so when we moved to Scotland in a sense you hope for a brighter future but at the same time you know what you're facing but what I found really difficult was that at that time I was pregnant with our third child and 
I hadn't seen a doctor, so I didn't see a doctor until I was seven months pregnant. Gosh. And being in a country where you know that, you know, this is the first world. This is the place where everything goes right, at least for children and family. It's a place where we appreciate human rights. You kind of don't expect that you're not going to be able to see a doctor for that period of time because... I hadn't been able to register with the doctor due to the immigration controls. It was challenging, very, very challenging. And, you know, there were small things that made it very difficult but were quite major. Like we had a double baggy, I was pregnant, so after I had the second child, the third child rather, we now had the double baggy for the two children, but the older one was only three. And I had no transport to go anywhere, so I walked everywhere, 40 minutes to an hour, an hour and a half. We walked everywhere with our son. Thankfully, he loves walking now, but it's not what you hope for. Mm -hmm. I always thought when I have children, they're going to have a bright future. It's going to be brilliant. And then we spend the first five years of our older son's life really very poor and in a very difficult circumstance. And But that was difficult. But I think somebody once said that you see very clearly in a desert. You you see clearly because there is nothing distracting you except, you know, the sand. But also you see clearly because it's very difficult. And so you, you search deeper within yourself than you do in other circumstances. And for me, this is where I began to see clearly. And that is where really our business springs from. It is that difficult time. It is what we needed that we didn't have that we can now pass on to other people and support others to be able to do exactly the same. And was the business kind of a vision you had through that period that you were sort of working towards or was the business a reaction of coming out of that period to find a job and then discovering for multiple reasons you're unemployable and then having to improvise? How how did that work out for you? I think it was both things. Um, We knew when we didn't have the ability to work that we had to do something due to uh, not being allowed to be paid. And so we started to volunteer. But in the volunteering, we discovered that people were facing lots of difficult circumstances like us. We were not asylum seekers and refugees, but a lot of people were working with were. And so they had similar circumstances. And that made us think about doing something. So we did a monthly event where we brought people together. Really, we didn't know much about what we were doing except bring people together, talk about the challenges, encourage one another, have a meal together, and then go away. And that meal was prepared by the same people we reached out to. And often it was, even for our family, the only meal that we had in the day. And that was great. That gave us an understanding of what support was unavailable and what support needed to be available. And so we thought, this is great. We did it for a period of five years, reached about 150 people a year. And that was great. But then we came to 2012 where this is it. Finally, we get our leave to remain and we're like, fantastic. We've been doing this. We have uh, a voluntary team of about 10 people. We've been managing a project and it looks like this is it. We're now going to start work. So naturally, we went looking for work. We had no money, nothing. So you go looking for work. But when we tried to look for work, we were shocked to realize nobody wanted to employ us. So I had no way of earning money because... I hadn't apparently been working for five years, and so I didn't have that experience. Or the I didn't realize how bad it was in the UK, in Scotland, 
if you haven't been working for that long period of time, it's difficult to go back to work. Yeah. And I didn't know that. And so we tried for the first six months and failed miserably. And I, and we thought, do you know what? We know how to do something. So we decided to set up our own business. Nobody had ever done it. We didn't know anybody that had done it. But it was either we get stuck or we do something. So I think it was a mixture of having our eyes opened and a reactionary uh, response to we have no work, we've got to create it. And so we started. But for the first three years, it was tough. Nobody understood what we were trying to achieve because we didn't go by what we had seen. We hadn't really yeah. seen much. But even what we'd seen, we didn't really like. So we just started. And so every time you say to people what we were doing, which is try and support people into into work, which seemed to be what what other organizations were doing. But we didn't want to start from the point of, you need work, let's just put you in work. We wanted to know what skills have you got, what qualifications have you got, because we experienced that ourselves, that although we had experience, nobody was taking us on, and we thought, surely this can be used. And honestly, for the first three years, we tried that, and it somehow didn't work, because we thought, what, what, how can we do this? But they were facing the same barriers we were facing, but something came out. Suddenly, we were meeting people who were saying, I have this, and we're like, Actually, we'll teach you what we've learned in business. You learn from us and you set up your own business. Mm -hmm. And so we started to support people. The first client we had was a young lady who had a child, had, had graduated as a biochemist, could not find work, was black, and felt like she was completely excluded from the process, from the system. And so she wanted to set up a business but had tried a cleaning business and didn't know whether that would work. And I thought, why are you setting up a cleaning business? Can you, is there anything else you're passionate about? She said, yeah, I like to make products. I like to make healthy products for, you know, skin products. And I said, so why don't you do that? She said, can I? I said, yes, you can. So we supported her to do that. And indeed, she started to succeed in setting up her own business. And that opened up a whole new world of us supporting other businesses. And we still do that today. Yeah. How many... People of different kinds of companies now have you kind of had through the doors? Oh, every year we have about 25 to 34 different nationalities. We meet, uh, since we started, we've worked with over 500 people. We primarily are set up to work with minority ethnic groups, uh, people of color, uh, people who come from, you know, uh, refugee asylum backgrounds or people that really come from the countries that I feel are not really accepted as much in way of bringing their skill and value in mm -hmm. Scotland, which is often people from African countries and Eastern Europe. So we really work with that uh, group of people. But because in our own circumstances, when we were going around asking for support, there wasn't an organization that would support us. And the reason, we didn't tick a box. When we were refused a visa, we became undocumented migrants. When you're undocumented, you don't even tick a box that says, I have been refused. Because the Home Office did not respond to us for a good part of five years after we put in the new application. And so we had no real document to say we have been refused. And so everywhere you went, and you said, we're stuck. You know, the charities, the food banks. I remember we went to every single charity, mentioned the name, and they said, so have you got a letter? And we're like, no. And they're like, we can't help you. 
I found that ridiculous. I found that, to say the least, upsetting. And so now when we provide our support, those are the primary people that we support because they're the ones that we know how to do the support that they need. But also that is the group of people we've chosen to work with. However, it does not matter where you come from. If somebody comes to me, I will support them. I don't do a tick box exercise mm-hmm. and we choose not to do that. And it seems, I mean, as with so many things, impossible to get your head round and exasperating. I mean, ex- exasperating to hear, mm-hmm. unimaginable to experience, actually. But I mean, the point of enterprise is it grows everybody's pie bigger. It's exactly. Not, you know, when somebody starts a company, yeah. it's not like money gets taken from somewhere else. No. And pushed around. It's like, this is new money. This exactly. is a new pie. The country exactly. gets richer. The community gets richer. Exactly. Everybody involved gets richer. And it seems insanity that, yeah. that there's a blockage going on to prevent it is. anybody from doing that. It is. It's very sad because when you think about it, now for what we are doing, we support people who actually go out, work, start their businesses, and it adds to the community, it adds to the economy. But somehow that connection is not between what we choose to do as a nation collectively in a way of providing the environment and the space for all of us to grow. Even though we know it's good for us, somehow the connection between that and what we know is just not there. When you think about it, uh, asylum seekers, for example, when they come to the country, they are not allowed to work. But when you're not allowing that kind of people to work, say, for example, after six years, seven years, they then get allowed to work. Their skills have been depleted. Their confidence is low. Perhaps you have mental health Mm -hmm. often. And so that makes it difficult for them to progress in a way that they could have in the first instance. But this is the way the world is. We look at things in a strange way, and we look at people that are different with a strange eye, and therefore we treat them in a strange way, and we do things very differently to them and with them that makes it impossible for all of us to progress together. When eventually we started Radiant and Brighter, it took us three years before organizations could actually choose to work with us because apparently they couldn't understand what we were saying but we were speaking English and I come that... from an English speaking country <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I don't think it was the language that you were speaking that was hard to understand it's, it's the concepts right I mean yes I've sat in rooms bashing my head against a metaphorical wall you know, around gender diversity, you know, the fact that I am one woman in 20 of you does not tick the box that you are gender diverse. Yeah. How did you go about starting that conversation with these organizations, with these groups? Because I know, I know you've had success with some recognizable names in the corporate world, but also with, with political organizations. How did you start the conversation when if you are the majority and you are the default, yeah. I don't know what even the right term is, but if you are the world reflected back at you as the world you've come from, how do you get people to even think that there might be a more beneficial way for all? Do you know what is interesting is that it had to start in my head. 
I come from a country that is called poor. I come, I'm black, so I am considered less in some ways by some people. And I was aware of that, but I wasn't, I suppose, that aware of it until I started the work that we do. Because suddenly the perceptions were coming out of nowhere and into everything that we did. And in those first three years, I was aware there were people that just did not accept a black entrepreneur leading a black organization and working with black people. And I could see that there are times when you'd be in this place, you're the only black person and you're not hard. So I went to uh, university because I thought nobody seems to understand what we are saying, but we don't understand what they're saying either. So, because they were speaking language like capacity building, you know, in the sector that we work. And I was like, what is capacity building, you know? <laughs> Public and sector so, speak. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a peculiar language if you've not been in it. And so I decided to go back to university to study the language. And I went and I studied and I studied community development. But then I started to think about myself on the inside. So I had accepted that one I came from a poor country. I had accepted that, two, I was um, an immigrant and therefore I did not deserve. And I knew that for sure for so many years, um, being in the country 20 years now. You I, did not deserve yeah. or, or you should feel grateful somehow. Are they, and yes, or are they I was bound grateful. up in the same thing? Absolutely. I did not deserve and I was grateful that I was even remotely accepted. And that seemed normal. But then, as we started to do this, as we started to work, we met some fantastic people. We met some fantastic Scottish people that had our story and started to ask questions of why this was happening and explain to us why it wasn't right. But the thing that happened in my head and in our understanding was that why did we not deserve Actually, we were just as equal human beings as anybody else. And so I started to realize that we were being devalued for whatever we brought, but I was devaluing myself. I had to think, wait a minute, it's okay to be black. It's okay to be an immigrant. In fact, it's okay to come to Scotland. Because you know what? Before I came to Scotland, Scotland came to Uganda. The UK yeah. came to Uganda. But somehow we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that when people from the UK came to colonize Uganda, we didn't know about the UK. I was told about the UK because of that relationship. And so I started to think, actually, it's okay. And I became comfortable with my story. And people in Scotland, they ask a lot. They ask questions. Where do you come from? Why are you here? And initially, I was so uncomfortable about it. I didn't want to tell anybody that I was an immigrant um, with no paperwork because you know what? It makes you feel embarrassed. It yeah. has a stigma attached to it, even in our own communities. So I was like, I don't want anybody asking me about that. 
But they ask anyway, and oh, yeah. everywhere you I go. I mean, I have to say, it's, it's the Scotland thing. I'm still, I mean, people assume I'm on holiday. I've lived yeah. in Scotland for 18 years. <laughs> I mean, I'm from England. I clearly sound English. Yeah, I, I can buy on about independence with, yeah. the, with the best Scots, but I am clearly foreign. And, Absolutely. And, you know, if I'm on the bus in Gotham, I can tell you I'm assumed to be a tourist who's lost. And in London, they don't ask you that question. Nobody's from London. Exactly. <laughs> I lived in London and nobody's from London. But in Scotland, they asked the question, and so we repeated the story so many times that I actually became comfortable with it. And when we became comfortable, it became like a license for us to speak about our story, and it became the opportunity to start talking to people. And obviously, we started to talk about the circumstances, and then we started to hear there were other people that were uncomfortable with the situation that we faced and the challenges that we face as immigrants and the challenges of being a black minority ethnic woman. But you know what? That became the start of the conversation. And once we started to talk, then people became interested because people like a story. They like your story. They like you as a person. They want to hear about you. They don't want to know about, you know, paperwork and numbers before they know why. Absolutely. So we started to talk about what we do and people liked what we were trying to achieve. They liked the fact that we were comfortable with our story and it evolved into a comfortable conversation. And then we started, I laugh a lot and I joke a lot. And so I'd talk about the fact that I'm, you know, I'm black and I'd tease people about, you know, if somebody said something like, where do you come from? I'd say, are you being racist? And then I'd laugh at them. <laughs> and then they suddenly realized. they tied themselves up into knots of confusion. Yeah. And, and now it's, how, how do you actually? <laughs> and, and the shock when they realize you're actually not serious. Then I realized that was a tool that we could use. And now we take it into the boardrooms, we take it into the offices and we talk about diversity and we talk about culture and ethnicity because nobody really talks about that. And I think people are comfortable because they know that somehow I have the permission to speak because I'm black anyway. And that has become uh, the success that we now have because people are, are comfortable knowing that they are safe talking to you about it. And in a safe environment, talking about ethnicity and the uncomfortable questions, you know, like, what do you call me? Am I a woman of color? If you met me and you said, is that woman with short black hair, but there's lots of people like that, yeah. you call me black. So we have that conversation, you know, why don't you, why wouldn't you call me black? Is it, is there something wrong with me being black? You know, brown, which one is it? Caramel? Let's have that yeah. conversation. So that has now become I suppose what Radiant and Brighter is about mm. being different and talking about being different ethnically. And it's quite interesting that I mean, the person that's asking the question, and I, I actually know nothing more than I read about that individual's position. Yeah. I, I've, I've made certain assumptions, as you do, but I don't actually know anything about that individual. Mm. Um, but they are in that difficult position of trying to be a lone agent of change. And do you perhaps in your experience think it's better to bring people in to trigger the difficult conversation that you're talking about? I think there's different ways of doing it. Doing it. You need allies. In this conversation, you need allies. I can tell you that we wouldn't have made much progress as we have, as quickly as we did, if we didn't have friends that are white. 
that understand what we are trying to talk about, or at least that are interested. Because a lone voice can only go so far. And so it's important, one, to speak about it consistently, because you know what? Sometimes it's weary, it's tiring, because you will talk. Sometimes we go into conversations and the organization will say, oh, we want to do diversity. And then you have one meeting, you have a second meeting, you have a third meeting, and then you realize they yeah. actually, no, they're they just want ticking to tick, a box. Yeah, they want to tick the box to say yeah. that they put yeah. a specific amount of time. Exactly, and then they waste it. your time. Yeah. And you're a small organization with a small team. You don't want to be wasting your time. So you, you realize, and then sometimes you have to pull back. But the other challenge that, there is with uh, this conversation is you need to talk about it without sounding angry. <laughs> if you remotely sound angry, you become that angry black woman or you become that person that sounds like a broken tape. Or you have to make it an interesting conversation. So you have to start from where people are, where the organization is. If they are not yet ready for it, then you have to allow them to take the journey. Because by the time you get to the stage where you actually want to do something, you've taken a journey yourself. So you have to understand their journey. It's, it's challenging because it might take seven years to get that. <laughs> by which time you get angry and angry and angry and less Absolutely. able to self-please, I imagine. <laughs> so if you're a person... More like willing, more ready to smash the patriarchy. <laughs> so if you're that kind of person that gets angry about things, you want to take it to your room and come back. But... I don't generally get angry about the discussion. I just think that if somebody is not engaging, they probably don't understand or they're not ready. So we just take the conversation elsewhere until they're ready. And we've come to a stage where actually as an organization, we've decided that we work with people who want to work with us. We're not trying to chase people who don't want to work with us because they waste your valuable time. Mm -hmm. And as an entrepreneur, time is your most treasured. Oh, absolutely. You know, <laughs> it item. is. I mean, by a hell of a long way. Time, yeah. time is everything else exactly. is fixable. Exactly. I don't want to be tied up into meetings that discuss the same thing in the first, second, and third meeting. If it's not making progress, I want to move on. Yeah. And so for somebody who is in an organization that perhaps is not ready, you want to consider, who, and also you want to consider who is the decision maker. Engage them. But when you engage them, engage them in a day-to-day -day conversation. Talking about, oh, we need some black people here, it does not cut it. Talking about, we need women here, it does not cut it. Why? You think you, they understand. But the reason they're not doing it is because they don't actually understand. So you want to have a conversation about, you know, I was at this place the other day and they had these three women speaking and this is what they spoke about. Would you like to hear it? And you use certain mm -hmm. tools um, also with the conversation. I use a lot of uh, folk tales, analogies and things like that that bring a light-hearted conversation. And then when they like what they hear, you know, they then suddenly get involved. Most of the good work we've had has come as on the back of us being able to be at a speaking engagement and people are like, I like her, I like the way they talk about it. Let's see what they've got. And so that builds the conversation. So we really, it's sad, but we have to be patient and almost try to build a skill of engaging people and being friendly so that people are not feeling like you're pointing a finger mm -hmm. at them, which we actually don't need to because... Or maybe we need to, but there's really no point to that because it gets us nowhere. 
So I'd much rather have the conversation. But you make an interesting point about visibility. How do we think about widening visibility and not being so damn lazy, actually, in who we keep holding up? I had this conversation this morning. The conversation we had this morning, I went to an event. It was marketed as a high-profile event, which I think it was. And I went to the event with uh, Michael, my husband, we work with. We woke up at 6 o'clock, left the house at 8, drove all the way from Glasgow to Edinburgh, got ourselves there within the traffic within about two hours, walked into this event where I was supposed to stay for about two hours, walked in, sat down, looked around about 100 people, high-profile inclusive event, which I'll not mention, but there was myself, Michael, another black woman, and another one at the front. And I looked around, and then they didn't tell us. Then they mentioned they'd had these meetings, and this was the last meeting of the year. Went on to talk about uh, inclusion, but they did not say anything about how they intend to get that forward. They've had several other events. They didn't talk about where they are at and what they've achieved. So I just could not connect. I I just felt like this was another tick box exercise. And at the first opportunity, within an hour of arriving, I thought, this is a waste of my time. I have so much on my plate to do. I have to be here in time back to Glasgow for the podcast. (laughs) I have emails I have to respond to and documents I have to do. And Michael and I made the decision to come straight back within an hour of sitting in that room. I don't actually know whether we made an hour. But then we came back having this conversation about how you get invited to these things, but you see nobody else there, and it's tiring, and it's just not right. And this is the reason that we set up the Bright Futures Women's Program. Mm, Tell us more about the event. Yeah, we so... We have a conference on the 27th of September, and that conference will bring together uh, Radiant and Bright, the Bright Futures Program, all women program, women of color, together with Women's Enterprise Scotland, who have supported Radiant and Brighter since we uh, founded Radiant and Brighter, and in partnership with the Royal Bank of Scotland. So we'll have it at the headquarters in Gorgaban of the Royal Bank of Scotland. And it's fantastic to be able to do that because we need such visibility in these places that are really uh, instrumental in shaping how we view the economy and things like that. But the thing is, when we set up the Bright Futures program, I was tired of going places and being the lone black woman. And it's great and you get invited and it's beautiful, but you soon realize you're not making much progress and you are not going to make much progress being a lone voice. And so when we set it up, it was very much, it was, it's focused on leadership and enterprise. So people want to set up businesses, but it's also focused on raising leaders and raising that visibility. And so I think the way to go about it is to create uh, a visible role models through bringing together communities and groups of people to raise a lot, a lot more people than that single person. It has to be more collective than individual. And when we're talking about it this morning, I was thinking, when I did community development, I remember the lecturers talking so much about the importance of 
not doing individual work and more about community development and make and when you're working with a community you have to show that you're working with a group of people and I didn't understand it but now I do and this morning I spoke to my husband about it what I now understand is that that one person can grow and grow perhaps become the prime minister or whatever but unless that person has a group of others they are bringing along before we know it it will be 300 years before we have the second prime yeah. minister that's a woman and so we have a duty each one of us to raise a group of leaders really the best leaders are judged by how well they led in the way that they brought up other leaders. And it's a really interesting point because when you are that poster child, if you've been it you know, through gender or mm. been that through ethnicity, mm. you are held to such an improbable standard. It's like you're representing yes. everything yes. and you can't get anything right. Mm. So you now I had my moment of being perceived as successful and mm. then I had my moment of being a complete toxic failure mm. and literally everything dried up overnight and I was no longer a poster child and I was no longer invited to stuff because, you know, now I was a failure. Mm. And that's you written off. And anybody, like if, if all the effort goes to investing in yes. you as being, yes. you know, the poster child for the whole of Scotland mm. and, and you are the person that represents, you mm. know, everybody's opinion on everything, A, you won't survive that. Mm. And you're right, you've got nobody coming alongside you. And it's almost like, there again, is, the person asking this question is in that position of isolation where you just can't win. There is another danger. The danger is that, Oh, Vicky, you're so good. You're not like all those other women. <laughs> but really, there are other women that are like you, that are like me, that are better, that are so much more experienced, that have so much more to give, but they haven't been given that opportunity. Yeah. Or worse still, you come complicit in yes, exactly. making sure they don't. Yes. Whether you do that consciously or not. Yeah, I think we have a responsibility to ensure that you know, every time I'm in a place and they say, to tell us about your experience or something, I make a cautious effort of saying, I am not alone. There are a lot of other people. I just happen to have had the opportunities that they have not had. I think it was Michelle Obama that said, when, you, when the door is open for you, leave it open for others to come through. And I think that is what we really need to do. Because I don't want to be hailed as that person that is fantastic. And then, oh, she's great, but she's not like other black women. No, I am like so many others. And they are like me. But you just have met only me. And so we have a duty and a responsibility. Collectively, not just me. Perhaps, do you know, I think one of the challenges is that most organizations do not put through, I suppose, people of color to become visible. And so this is more the reason we need visible role models. This is more the reason we need people of color, women, uh, to come through and to come through the ranks and be seen to be doing something. I think sometimes it's easy to go back to what you know anyway, you know? And I think it's difficult to make that shift and find um, a different person from a different background when you haven't necessarily engaged with them or been anywhere with them. So I think it's, it's, it's sometimes it's, it's like that. And you made the point earlier, and, and just to bring it back round as, as we start to wrap up, you made the point about 
you can't, the person asking this question or anybody trying to start this, this conversation can't come from a position of being angry and, and, and finger pointing because it doesn't help. Are there any provable outcomes that you can bring into a conversation mm-hmm. that can start to set the kind of inkling going on in somebody's head that there might be gains for the organisation? people within the organization to mm. be breaking their groupthink or mm. be able to break the patterns that they're in mm. if they were just a little bit more open to it. I mean, I think we are at very early stages. Um, we are quite freshly into this. I know three, two, two years seems like quite a bit in the way that we've been working with diversity, but it's still a fresh discussion in Scotland. It's a very new discussion. When people have been considered as the other for such a long time, and it has happened over hundreds of years. It's difficult to suddenly change that narrative, but the narrative needs to change nevertheless. And so the statistics are not even very available because nobody does research in this area. Why would they? It doesn't look very good anyway, and even if it did, who is interested? And so there are not a lot of statistics. And so we as an organization... What we are doing is reaching the hearts and minds of people. Mm -hmm. It's difficult for me to, even if I say to you, we've reached, you know, like now we work with Max and Spencer, we've, we, we have over 40 people that have come through our programs that now work in Max and Spencer. That will sound really good. But the truth of the matter is, you will only want change when your heart is in that place, when your mind is in that place. And so as an organization, we focus on reaching the hearts and minds of people. And we use the statistics of what we are doing to show the success and to show what we're doing. But really, this conversation, those statistics don't seem to make any difference. Mm -hmm. People will hear it, want it, but they don't really have a real appetite for diversity. And so it doesn't really mean anything to them. But when they hear, like today, no, yesterday, we were meeting a group of women that want to join our mutual mentorship program. You know, the Bright Futures program that we were talking about. It started in January. We have 90 people that are on the program. So many of them have started work, done business and everything. But we now realize that so much change has happened on the back of people meeting somebody of a different background and a different culture. So they start to see Actually, it's a great thing. It's it's, it's an opportunity. And I think I'm finding that in Scotland, not many people have had the experience of meeting somebody from a different background unless they've traveled. And if they travel, they just go away to be a tourist and Mm -hmm. come back. But what we're now doing in the mutual mentorship is that the women like who are Scottish and in leadership, like in the business or in their organization, we pair them up with a woman from a different background, often a woman of color. And so when they meet, we stress the emphasis on mutual mentorship because when we started it, interestingly, uh, some of the women that were white and in leadership, because they've been leaders for such a long time and are white, which is often seen as a more superior ethnicity, they then... A lot of them, some of them, straight away went into them being in their heads the mentor and the woman of color being the mentee. But even the women of color thought 
They are the mentee and she's the mentor. But actually, what we're saying is, you and I, Vicky, we have so much to learn from each other. Let's mutually uh, learn from each other. We are both experts in our own area and might not be in a big organization being the CEO or the founder or whatever. But you know what? I am the expert of my own life. And I bring so much, having lived in perhaps Malawi for whatever, until I was about 24, then came to Scotland for another 10 years. I probably bring so much that you could learn from. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is when they meet, they get a day in each other's lives. When that happens, suddenly it's a different thought process. They start to think about, oh, this person, so, oh, this is what they do, so they don't just sit at home, so their life is like this. The amount of people that do not know, they hear about asylum seekers, about refugees, but they do not actually know that when you come into the country, you don't have benefits. They think, as soon as you get in, you get a visa, you're an asylum seeker, you get a a stamp or document that says asylum seek £100 a week. A lot of people actually don't realize that when you come into the country, you have nothing. They don't realize the number of court uh, appointments you have to address your asylum process. They don't know that people spend 16 years trying to prove that they have been raped under asylum seekers. People don't know that. And because they don't, they are unable to put a human touch to it. And so they see you as another statistic another asylum seeker. But when I meet you as a person and I tell you my story, suddenly it's like, oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that. And that is where the change really starts. Fascinating. And I think that sounds like the most enlightened, sensible, practical method of mentorship that Mm. you've come up with there. Yeah, um, I really do. Um, we're running out of time. Is there any final advice for the founders or entrepreneurs or possibly even the politicians that are listening <laughs> that you would like to take advantage of whilst you have control of the microphone? Well, if you are listening, everybody needs culture diversity and we are your people, radiant and bright. No, but seriously, I think the final words that I'd like to say is The one thing that connects us is that we are all different. It doesn't matter what ethnicity or whoever you are, we are all different. And so try it out. Let's not have the tokenism. Let's look at the importance of bringing together the diversity of culture and of ethnicity. Let's have that conversation. Create those spaces where we can have that conversation. Because... What the people who have been on the mentorship program have said is that they didn't realize how perhaps their life was going or how they were so focused on what they were doing that they did not know. They didn't know another world. When you open up to a different world, you learn so much more. We're talking about diversity, but learning it through a piece of paper and ticking a box and having a folder on your shelves does not do anything. Experience diversity. Experience it through the eyes of others. Experience it through the experiences of others. The people that have worked with us, some of them have gone on to be nominated in their organization as the champions of diversity. We've had people that have been nominated for awards. 
So everybody that associates with Radiant and Brighter has got a bright future. So do associate with us. Associate yourself with diversity. It works. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Vicky Brock and Fiona Matovu, this week's Entrepreneur Agony Aunts. If you like the podcast, please spread the word and subscribe at iTunes or Spotify or YouTube or my new EntrepreneurAgonyArt.com website. Thank you.